Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up for the Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and truth. A man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You can't handle the truth! Now, here's the host of Stand Up for the Truth. Mike LeMay. Unashamed of the gospel, standing on the truth of God in the Bible. Hello, friends. Mike LeMay and David Fiorazzo. Welcome to another edition of Stand Up for the Truth. It's Friday, so we're going to read your comments, answer your questions, or we're going to get into a uh, debate that I think I need my sanity checked to get into. We're going to talk about a growing schism in Christianity over two 500-year-old theologies, Calvinism and Arminianism after we open in prayer. Father, thank you so much for just giving us another opportunity to talk about truth and things that matter. And uh, God, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need you, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that promises to guide us into all truth. We ask that you'd heighten our senses, our discernment, and our sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we thank you that every one of us as believers is filled with your spirit, and uh, we do have a say in uh, whether we quench the spirit or listen to your uh, promptings and listen to your guidance and receive that word of truth. And we ask, Lord, for the humility to do so. Um, help us to check our pride at the door. And, uh, Lord, that not includes us, even our listeners, and not only that, but just uh, the Christians in your church, people that are sincerely pursuing the truth, Lord, and want to get doctrinal issues correct, we pray in Jesus' name that there would be not only humility, but a, an increased desire to search your scriptures, to search the truth in your word, because we know your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and you speak through your word to your children, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we're not clueless, without hope, without help, and we know that we can trust you in all things. We pray this hour and this day and one day at a time that your truth would prevail in our hearts individually over this radio broadcast and this program, also in your church, Lord, and we are the body of Christ. And uh, we just pray that your will would be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. David, let's get right to it. We'll read Carla's question, and then the three of us, uh, I've got some notes I want to share, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this uh, issue. Carla says, I've been listening to your show for about four years now and love your topics and how you have taught people to stand for truth in so many different areas. But lately, I've noticed your show becoming more Calvinistic. Is this something you guys support? A few weeks ago, you had on someone from Grace to You, John MacArthur Ministries, and I do, did not agree with everything. Now, I just see that you posted a link on Facebook about the 3G conference. I'm a little concerned about what direction you are going and question if I should still listen and continue to recommend your podcast. Can you please shed some light as to where you stand and if you believe in the doctrines of grace? Thank you, Carla. Let me start off by, uh, I've got about five minutes of notes I want to go through, and then David and I and Crash are going to talk about this as long as it's got legs. A couple of questions I want to ask us, though. Uh, we know that God's Word contains all the truth we will ever need. But does that mean we have to fully understand it to believe it? We believe in a triune God. We don't fully understand that. We believe Jesus Christ is God and human, although we struggle to understand how that can be. So why do we feel we have to understand where God's sovereignty and man's responsibilities intersect before we can accept God's great gift of forgiveness and justification through the cross? We're going to discuss a question that is 500 years old between Calvinism and Arminianism, and we're asking, is this debate necessary and productive, or is it becoming a source of self-righteous condemnation and borderline hatred of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it crucial that we understand election, predestination, and calling before we can even accept the great gift God has given us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know, there's an old saying, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Well, I fear that too many Christians are doing that, and we're losing our joy by arguing over something way above 
our level of human understanding. So let's start this discussion off by understanding our position before Almighty God. Romans 11:33 through 35 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid? And in Isaiah 55, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the scriptures are clear. God's ways and thoughts are far superior to those of man. So we start off from a position of humility before the Lord. Now I want to go to John, 1 John four nineteen through 21. Uh, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So since the 16th century, Christians have been arguing over doctrines taught by two different men, John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. Now we're going to post a link to gotquestions.org on Calvinism versus Arminianism, but I want to take a few minutes to highlight the, the five basic differences in these beliefs. Calvinism holds to the total depravity of man, while Arminianism holds to partial depravity. Calvinism's doctrine of total depravity states that every aspect of humanity is corrupted by sin, therefore human beings are unable to come to God on their own accord. Now, partial depravity states that every aspect of humanity is tainted by sin, but not to the extent that humans are unable to place faith in God of their own accord. Now, Calvin saw atonement as limited, while Arminius saw it as unlimited. Limited atonement is the belief that Jesus only died for what Calvin called the elect. Unlimited atonement is the belief that Jesus died for everyone, but that his death is not effectual until a person receives him by faith. Now, Calvinism includes the belief that election is unconditional. Arminianism believes in conditional election. The difference there, unconditional election is the view that God elects individuals to salvation based entirely on his will, not on anything inherently worthy in the individual. Conditional election states that God elects individuals to salvation based on his foreknowledge of who will believe in Christ unto salvation, thereby on the condition that the individual choose, chooses God. GodQuestions.org says both systems fail in that they attempt to explain the unexplainable. Human beings are incapable of fully grasping a concept such as this. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign and knows all. Yes, human beings are called to make a genuine decision to place faith in Christ unto salvation. Now, these two facts may seem contradictory to us, but in the mind of God, they make perfect sense. Gentlemen, your thoughts. I have a lot of other notes here, but, um, you know, first and foremost, is this a debate that is worthy of us as Christians, or are we just causing more problems than we are solutions? The uh, uh, Back to Carla's question, um, I am the one who has a relationship with Cameron Butrell. I'm the one that, while you were uh, taking some time out, I discussed it with David. Would you like to have him on as a guest? And so um, I have never heard anything that he's ever talked about on his Facebook page or the Grace to You blog unscriptural. So I didn't have a challenge with that. And uh, I don't know, David, if you just said, well, I'll take your word for it, that kind of thing. So I, I'm going to say that was, uh, I guess, my call or my decision while you were gone because I didn't bother you about that. So I just wanted to throw that out there for Carla. Also, that G3 conference post on Stand Up for the Truth I put on there. And what I'm, I'm saying this because I'm not seeing the disconnect on these, on these things. Um, and I have never ever read a single teaching of john calvin's so i don't know anything about what he 
everything, all these debates that I've heard about and you and I have discussed is, have always been scripture. I didn't say Calvin said or Arminian said or whatever. Like, I don't know that kind of stuff. And I don't understand. But what I've been seeing was in these, when I've been talking to uh, other people about it, it just blows my mind that some of these, I haven't talked with the Arminius, but these Calvins, I, I, when I talk about them, I'm going like, so who, do you, so do you believe somebody has perfect theology, a human being is, and they're going, oh yeah, John MacArthur, or, or they'll name these people, or R.C. Sproul, I'm going, perfect theology? Who's got perfect theology? Because I have not seen that yet. No. David, any thoughts? I Yeah, I have a lot, but I, I think we uh, just need to, I'll just let you continue because there's, it could be very lengthy. You don't want to jump in the boat with me, huh? No, I'm. I could go either way here. I understand the the, the views on both sides, but I I think pride is one of the big issues. And in, in what what you said, you know, I we've got this theology down. No, you, you can fully explain the grace of God, His sovereignty, man's free will, the Trinity. Go on down the list of of things that some might refer to as mysteries, and I think we could spend years debating i don't think it's productive to get in on these debates and i've seen the extremes like you have crash on both sides on social media not necessarily on our page anymore i think we scared a lot of people away but we are not taking the side of calvinism by any stretch i think a lot of men who i follow i started to follow certain teachers because of their their expository teaching or their their understanding of doctrine the sound doctrine of God's word before I even knew they were Calvinists. Calvinist. So there are many teachers like that. And there may be someone I follow that I like their sermons who are Arminius. I don't know, but they don't wear it on their sleeve. They don't push it. So I could say a whole lot more, but there's so many listeners and, and questions to get to, but I'll let you guys continue talking okay. about this issue. Good, David. Thank you. I tell you, I think I've been very clear, gentlemen, over the last nine and a half years, my thoughts on the danger of this new hyper-Calvinism. <clears throat> I have spoken out against it. Um, I, I find much of the blame on this is on these new Reformed hyper-Calvinists who look down on their brothers and sisters in Christ with disdain. And that's like, pride. Yeah, like we're a bunch of idiots that we haven't figured this whole thing out. And many are quite simply arrogant. They talk down to others. They hide behind God to resolve themselves of any hard choices and responsibility that the gospel brings. So I've been very, very clear about this. I have also seen the destructive nature of hyper-Calvinism. I have friends who are Calvinists, who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, three of them that I have known in the last four years, because one of the things where where Calvinism kind of denies that we have free choice, free will, right? So it's like we're these robots that God programs and we do this. I have three friends who are former Calvinists who have given up on their faith, and their reasoning was, well, I can't stop sinning, so therefore I guess I'm just not one of God's elect. Oh, my goodness. How sad is that? Yeah. And and that's the danger of this hyper-Calvinism. The other issue is evangelism when it comes to Calvinism and believing, you know, God knows who, who is elect and who is chosen and who's not. There's a question, a little ambiguity. There's a question about free will there, so why evangelize? But you know what's interesting about that, David, is go ahead, Crash. Why? Because the Bible tells you to. Exactly. Exactly. I understand That's that. That's when we're looking at God going, Can, excuse me a second, before I go out and die for you, <laughs> why am I dying for somebody that is not going to receive this? You know who it is. Can I have that? And Charles Spurgeon says, until I get the roll call of the elect, I'm going to preach to whosoever. And so, and Spurgeon was, I, Calvinist, I don't know. I, I don't know that much about <laughs> Spurgeon. So I don't uh, think he was a Calvinist. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm just tired of all these labels. I mean, you can read, uh, you can read Spurgeon, you can read Tozier, and you will see strains of Calvinism and Arminianism throughout their teaching. I'm just tired of all the labels, and and it just it to me it is destructive. And and I want to take a couple minutes and see if we can't focus on something we can all agree on. Do we agree that it is the gospel alone that saves us from the wrath and punishment of God? Is the gospel, Jesus Christ, the only way we can be saved? Of course. So what, what is it in us that instead of just accepting this gift, we almost have to try to figure out God's motive in giving the gift? It, it, it just to me is it, it's hubris. Um, why can't we just accept the fact 
that a, the just and gracious God of the universe looked down upon us as lost sinners and sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross, to be buried, to be raised from the dead. I think both sides would agree with what you just said, though. So we have one point we can agree on. <laughs> we, should, we are only saved by the grace of God and none of us deserve it, right? Yes. We're in agreement there. But what the concern I have in this, and, and Crash, you said it earlier, uh, some people, it's almost like they think John Calvin or Jacobus Arminius or John MacArthur, Paul Washer, Ray Comfort, David Platt, John Piper, Billy Graham, are our saviors. They're not. They're fallen sinful men. None of them is going to make you right with God. But we, we hitch our wagons to their theology, and we act as if it's God himself speaking instead of the opinions of men. I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say that people uh, think other men are their saviors. I think idolatry is the problem. Mm -hmm. They put them up on a pedestal. and there's, there's no way that another man can save anybody, and, and I think most people would admit that. Right. But they elevate their teachers, and we're warned about that. They elevate their teachers, and um, this is how false teachers gain power. They gain a following, and look out, because it just takes a little leaven. Um, I, I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a loss here because, again, I, I, I question the productivity, whether it's productive or counterproductive, to have these debates. I know you want to get doctrine settled, but once you do that and you know what you're doing in your church, hopefully you know your, where your pastor stands on these issues, then these other external things— I. I don't know. The, the, uh, it's back to the po what this question Carla was asking was the G3 conference. And some and, and and some people said on that Facebook post, these are all false teachers. And I mean, my first thought was, do you listen to stand up for the truth or is this just a troll? Or, or to Q90FM because we play Todd Friel's show. And Phil Johnson is sometimes on his show, and he talks about John MacArthur's uh, way, uh, whatever, his master's uh, seminary and things like that. And I'm going, what is the disconnect? And it's going like, so she says, can you shed some light as to where you stand and if you believe in the doctrines of grace? Because if you're going to say, what, what, is, what does Carla need you to say so she can decide, well, I'm not going to promote your show anymore because you – I, I, I'm sorry, and like and like what David's saying here is okay. Uh, in 30 minutes, what 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 conclusion are we going to come to? <laughs> I mean, know, really. And Carla, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what you mean when you say, "Can you shed some light to where you stand and if you believe in the doctrine of grace?" If you're asking, "Do I believe that the grace of God alone is what can save a sinful man?" I absolutely believe in the grace of God alone. I believe it is something we cannot earn through our righteous deeds or anything else. It is a free gift from God, and the only thing um, that is necessary for a man to be justified by God is to admit we need to be justified, to admit that we're sinners, that we're lost, that we can't save ourselves. So by all means, we agree in the doctrine of grace. I don't, you know, I have been looking at this subject for 10 years, and I'll be honest with you, I'm worn out looking at it. I really, really am. I am worn out looking at it, and I've come to a conclusion. While we need to contend for the faith, we, we have to stop being contentious and arrogant. Mm -hmm. And let's stop trying to understand things we may never understand and simply rejoice in the fact that we've been saved from our sin and eternal condemnation. Let's stop trying to figure out why and how God chose to save us and just rejoice in the fact that he did. Just, in, just rejoice in the fact that God saved you from your sin. We don't have to break this apart and try to figure out the minutiae of God's mind because it's literally going to drive us batty trying to do that. And I think it sends people down the wrong path. Uh, discernment ministries are good if they're doing it biblically and with love and grace. Yeah, Jesus was full of grace and truth. The perfect balance, the only one probably that was ever yes. full of grace and full of truth. And I think if you are out of balance on either side of that, you can be too harsh. Um, instead of sharpening one another with the Word of God, some discernment ministries look to bludgeon, bludgeon. one another. And I, I like that because, I mean, I don't like that that's happening, but we can see this going on, and I think it just drives a wedge in things that, like, you've shared before what you think people should, um, when they break fellowship over certain issues, 
I mean, people break fellowship over certain things that if they're not a blatant false teacher leading the flock astray or teaching some ungodly doctrines, then let's try to find some grounds for unity where we can agree on certain things, understand the essentials of the gospel and the doctrines of God and salvation, and then let's, now I'm not saying unify over things that are not biblical, but discernment ministries, I think, have gotten to the point where you're looking for the littlest thing mm-hmm. to be critical about, and I, don't, I think that does uh, the body of Christ a disservice. I think in summarizing this, David, amen, because I think you just hit a home run. Jacob Arminius and John Calvin both believed that man is saved solely by the grace of God, solely by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They both firmly believe that. What they were talking about is the mechanisms, the, the stuff under the hood. Does God predestine or does God give us choice? So we are arguing about something that we should not argue about because both men agree that it is the gospel alone through Jesus Christ that saves us. But you know we're, we're arguing if it should be a Chevy or a Ford, if it should be a Toyota or a Honda, if it should be a two-door or a four-door. And I think we're bringing shame upon ourselves by elevating this to a level where we start hurling heretic and false teacher and apostate yep. one another over it. So yep, thank agree. you, David. I think you did a great job <laughs> of bringing clarity there. When we come back, a lot of comments on our interview with Laura Perry. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Well, now that we got that 500-year-old argument settled, let's <laughs> yeah, move right. on, David. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord help us. Um, Bill writes in next a lot of comments on our interview uh, from a couple of days ago. We'll put that in the podcast, uh, link that up. Uh, Laura Perry's story, uh, Transgender to Transformed. He said, what a powerful interview. What struck me is how something little said or done can lead our children into chaos and seeking meaning and value apart from God. In her case, with her mother adoring her compliant child while disregarding Laura, who was a bit of a rebellious child, God made made each of us unique and wonderful, and when we treat someone as less because they don't meet our expectations, things like this happen. I don't want to – can I say something about sure. that? I, I, I don't want to give our people that, that haven't read the book um, – she did not have a bad mother. She had no. a legalistic mother that was putting a lot of demands on herself and on works and on serving the church and on the time. Laura's sister may have been compliant. Laura had a short attention span and was a little, little rambunctious. But just just don't want to give people the idea that Laura was rebellious when she was really young. No. Because that was not the case. So I just want to clarify that. But, yeah, words and, and what children believe growing up is important. Yeah, and Laura was very, very clear. She was not blaming her mother for what happened. You know, it, it, when Laura was talking about that, I, I thought of the Gospel of John. And remember how John always referred to himself? the disciple that Jesus loved. Yeah. You know, and it's like, so he he didn't love Peter. I mean, Peter was kind of the rebel, right? Peter would have kind of been the Laura Perry from a point of, ah, you know, just angry guy, denies. So Peter was the rebel. John was the compliant one. But Jesus loved them both very, mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I, uh, Bill, thank you. But no, Laura did a great job, I thought, in, in no way, shape, or form did she blame her mother for her bad choices. And by the way, let me take a, a couple seconds and just say, when you see a story on social media, those of you who are on Twitter, Facebook, all the other outlets, that is about a former homosexual, gay, lesbian, or former transgender these are human beings. Many of them have come to salvation in Christ, and Christ has redeemed them and transformed their lives. That is a story that needs to be shared. Amen. The media will not do it. Hollywood not, will not do it. The left, the Democrats, they won't do it. They're going to put that down. It doesn't fit their narrative, so they're going to deny these people airtime and freedom of speech. It's not, even on Amazon now, Amazon just came out and is removing authors who are former gays or lesbians, or are talking about therapy, counseling for gays and lesbians, homosexuals, Amazon. So it's make sure you encourage these stories and share them because a lot of them are being silenced. Well said, David. Crash, did you have anything on that or do you want me to go on? 
Go ahead. You got another Laura Perry one. A lot of them. Elaine said, I was so struck by the graciousness of Laura Perry at a time when children look to blame their parents or others for everything. Laura owned her own choices and refused to hate her mother or blame her for her choices. Amen. That was great. Sandra is next. What a powerful story of redemption and God never giving up on us, reaching out to us in the depths of our sin and rebellion. For those that don't know, Laura Perry lived as a transgender for about 10 years. It's easy to cast a stone on those struggling with gender identity, but in this confusing world, many young people are seeking to find their identity and acceptance of others. The The story I heard from Laura was this. When you try to, t- to deny who God created you to be, it can only lead to confusion and heartbreak. Do you remember when Laura, and I, I hope I'm not putting words in her mouth, but she, she transitioned from a woman to a man. And then she had this partner, Steve, uh, someone who had transitioned from a man to a woman. And Laura said over and over, I just wanted to be a really good man of God. So she thought she was a man. <laughs> I want to be a really good man of God. And then she realized one day, I can't be a man of God because I'm a woman. So I want to be a really good woman of God. And mm. that just really, really struck me when Laura shared mm. that. So, Another one, anonymous. We have a child questioning her gender, and the interview with Laura gives me hope that God will never abandon her as she questions her identity. I know it will require patience, but I trust in God that he will reach our daughter in his perfect timing and not try to press the issue. Oh, amen. Amen. One more on Laura here. All right. Bob writes in Laura Perry's story. By the way, it was Monday, Monday's podcast. Right. If you want to check that out, standupforthetruth.com. Laura Perry's story is a testimony to how God never gives up on us and how we as Christians should never give up on one another. Amen. And, you know, David, I, I think in our lives too, and I'll just speak for myself. There's sometimes I, I just continue to sin. I, I know it's wrong and I continue to sin. And every once in a while, the enemy will try to get in my head and say, you know, at what point is God going to give up on you? And the answer is never. He never gives up on us. When we are his children, we are his children forever. And, and Laura's story, again, I, I hope it, it helps us to understand that we all have selective timelines. Well, God should change somebody in six months. But that's not God's timeline. And we need to be patient. We need to make certain we're not a stumbling block uh, so we, we don't excuse the wrong belief, but we don't necessarily condemn people and try to get in the way of what God's doing. And, and pray for parents that have, and oh, there's yeah. so many today, Christian parents that have sons or daughters growing up being influenced by culture and, and doubting their gender and who God is. So they are really dealing with a lot today that we, maybe 50 years ago, never had to deal with. Should we go to Brian? Yes, and this is about yesterday's show, and we were talking about uh, okay, yeah, because it says, I just caught part of the show. Just to have a quick comment, how many lives and families could be impacted if the federal government used the money they spend on abortions toward adoptions? There are families that could support an adopted child, but the adoption fees are too much for them. God has blessed my wife and I to adopt two beautiful children, and by his grace, we are in the process of adopting one more. Praise the Lord. There are many people that aren't able to do that, though. How expensive is that? I never looked into that. It depends. And international adoptions can be over $35,000. Because they require... Last time I heard, and this has been years since I looked in the details, two different trips. Not only do you have to require for government, you know, all the legal stuff and the red tape and all that, and then taking care of the child well, well, you're not there, but you have to go there, Russia, Ukraine, for example, wherever it might be, Guatemala. You have to go there, and then you meet the child and do whatever mm-hmm. you need to do legally through their government there. Come back, and then there's the process, and then you have to fly there again. Two trips are required, so that's Two big airfares mm-hmm. and time there. I think you have to be there a week or something. If I may be off on that, but that is that all adds up because it governments are so corrupt. They're thinking tourism. <laughs> They're not thinking for the child's yeah. best interest. They're thinking we can get these Americans who want to adopt our children to come over here, stay in our hotels, eat in our restaurants, do a little shopping, 
help a child in here and go back, and then they're still helping us out when they come back. It's just so corrupt. Yeah. You know the reason, Brian, and you know your answer is completely logical. Let's have the federal government assist in adoption, mm-hmm. and then children live instead of being butchered. Right. It's completely logical, but here's why it'll never happen. You have to understand the radical environmental movement, the abortion population movement, control. It's, it's right. all about population control. Yeah, it's man's fault, right? Man is the enemy. Yep. Man causes climate change. Man causes crime. Man causes pollution. You know, some of these environmentalists actually are saying now the earth can only support about one million people. One million people. Oh, my goodness. So the government um, de facto loves Planned Parenthood because it's going to reduce population. It'll never give credits for people to adopt more children because in their eyes, that's the problem. We have too many people in the world. Well, I know this could open up a whole nother can, but okay, so you've got the push for abortion that's been happening for, for 40 years, and we're funding Planned Parenthood, not the government funding, our tax dollars, the taxpayers are funding it. And you've got adoption, which is a very real need, and God bless those parents that are doing that, which is a very compassionate thing to do, to adopt, to preserve life. But what about abstinence? You think if they won't go for adoption, they're concerned about population control. They won't go for abstinence, no. teaching abstinence in well, the public schools. Praise God you went there. Because that means you can't have sexual expression with without restraints. Yeah. Well, I mean, because every time I find myself in all of these debates, I'm going, why isn't anybody talking about fornication? <laughs> You know, I mean, why is everybody talking about what's the solution? I'm going, I don't know. Well, why don't we stop fornicating? Yeah. Would, would that help? I, I think adoption is one of the single greatest acts of love we can do. And you think about this. Are we um, God's offspring or are we adopted? He, had, he, has, he has one begotten son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. We're adopted. And like Dave Wager said, the only thing an adopted child brings is need. Amen. So to these parents uh, who are adopting children, what an act of selfless love. The same, uh, a, a mirror, if you will, of God's love for us that he adopted us when we were homeless and we were, without, uh, we were living in an abusive, with an abusive father, Satan, and he adopted us because he loves us. So praise God. Next, Daniel writes in, My wife and I attended the same local church for years until it started dabbling deeply with word of faith theology. We witnessed spiritual and financial manipulation of the worst kind. We were badgered and called lesser Christians because we don't speak in tongues and because we did not adhere to the man-made teaching that tithing to the local church is a requirement. We slowly became outcasts. Finally, after a couple of years of watching this, we left that church and found one centered on God's word, accurately balancing accountability and grace. I caution people who have been in the same church for years to not become complacent, always on spiritual guard for deception that can creep in slowly. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. We have to be on guard. And, you know, we are Christ's bride. We are married to him. We're not married to a church building. So... Uh, Gary said, I've heard you comment about China's new social credit scoring system as a potential model for the mark of the beast, warned about in Revelation. Not only is our credit history used to determine loans, employment, etc., but also our compliance with society and government. Could Facebook and Google also be instruments of this coming mark of the beast? David, I know you have no thoughts on that whatsoever. Oh, my goodness. I think one of the biggest dangers is not necessarily government, and it's not necessarily so many other things in our culture, but these these corporations, I should say these um, social media giants that control information, news, technology with so much power. You know what they say about power? It corrupts, and mm-hmm. absolute power corrupts absolutely. But these they have way too much power, as you see now uh, in the silencing of free speech of those they disagree with, and usually those are Christians and conservatives and people who would oppose this ideology we're seeing pushed. Uh, mark of the Beast, what is the Mark of the Beast? The Mark of the Beast in Revelation says that uh, the Antichrist will force everyone to put his basically his name, 666, whatever that means, on their forehead or their hand. And without it, they could not buy or sell goods. So you're pledging allegiance to the Antichrist. And if you don't, you're not able to, to buy food or so sell So is it allegory? Is it literal? Okay, all right. 
So I'm just going to go with. We believe it's a literal. I, I think it is. I mean, so let's say that it's. Let's say that it's. A barcode on your. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, let me think of a name. Uh, Putin. I'm just going to. I'm throwing a name. Putin or the Pope. And so we're going to have a name Pope somewhere on our body. It's, and says, and so somebody's going to look at our sleeve and say, oh, you got Pope on your arm, so now you can go buy, sell, and all these things, because you cannot have any kind of commerce or anything, right, unless you have the mark of the beast. Right. right? So here's my Pope on there, and I'm going like, I don't know if that's what it's really going to be, because, uh, Mike, I've talked to you, uh, we've had these conversations, what if the mark of the beast is a smart device? Uh-huh. Name somebody without a smart device. Well, it, it clearly says, though, in Revelation that it's going to be a— You say clearly. Okay. Yeah, it, it says you're going to receive Stamp. a mark uh, on your forehead or on your wrist, I believe it says in, in that context. So it doesn't say it's going to be any other thing than just those two, right, when it comes to the mark. And my of the point beast. is, is this gentleman is asking, is this the mark of the beast, or is he asking, is this leading to the mark of the beast? I think it's it's leading. And when okay. we talked about China's scoring system, I think it's going to be a tool. Uh, Revelation. A he asked if it was a model yeah. for the mark of the beast. And Revelation 13, 16, that it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead okay. so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast. And then it says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six six six. So sounds um, pretty clear to me. Yeah, you're 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 basically pledging allegiance to Antichrist to the beast over God, and then mm-hmm. you're able to sell get that. and you're yeah. able to buy. Now it doesn't necessarily say we're all going to have six 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 on us. It, no. it says that uh, the number of the beast is right. calculated to be six six six. But yeah, so I don't think we can go on on that. Yeah. So anyway, when we come back, more of your questions and comments. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Hey, another Antichrist question, David. All right. Kellen writes in, in a show a couple weeks back, you guys were speculating about the one world religion under Antichrist, what it might look like. Speculation ranged from Roman Catholicism to new liberal brands of evangelical Christianity to Islam. Might I throw another option in the hat to consider earth worship? Hmm. We see it all over the radical environmental movement and throughout many forms of religions like Native American spiritualism to Hinduism and Buddhism. Mother Earth is a term that has become very popular in the past several decades. Yeah, Carl Teichrib writes a lot about that Gaia, Gaia mm-hmm. worship. Uh, so it's Mother Earth. <clears throat> and uh, and it's a female It's a on female. purpose. Yeah. So there, there's a lot. I mean, environmentalism, you can certainly argue, is is uh, uh, earth worship, certainly. So, uh, you know, Kellen, you, your guess is as good as mine. But I, what I do know is the Antichrist is going to stand opposed to Jesus. He's going to claim he's the Savior when, in, in, not, in, in fact, he's the one that wants to enslave us forever. And I want to parenthetically insert here that be careful. We, many of us, even in the Christian church, use the phrase sometimes uh, Mother Nature. That's... To me, that, that is not biblical whatsoever yeah. because God is the creator and author of nature, the sovereign God over all things, including events and natural disasters, everything else. So when you hear Mother Nature, it, you might, I know you're saying it like, yeah, this fictional Mother Nature, but first of all, you're saying God is not God over nature. Second, you're saying it's a female you know, entity that's in charge over nature. So it goes along with the false ideology that got this Gaia, this, this Mother Earth worship goddess. Um, so be careful using the terms Mother Nature. Th- that would be considered maybe idle words at least mm-hmm. and uh, really uh, unbiblical at worst. Uh, agreed. My two cents. Good two cents. Andy writes in, your show has been a blessing to me and my wife. We have learned a lot of, uh, we've learned a lot and appreciate the balance of truth and grace hey. you bring from God's word. There it is. Would you consider doing more shows on biblical marriage? Paul mm. says marriage is symbolic of Jesus' relationship with the church, and it seems to me that the better our marriages, the better church will become. Well, I have nothing to add to that. Oh, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. You're right, uh, Andy. Thank you, by the way. The better our marriages, the better the church will become, and just the opposite, the better the church is. The better marriage. Would you say, you, anyone, one of you guys can add up. What do you think is uh, 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 the devil's 
main target? Is it the church, the American church, or is it marriages? Well, I, I, I think it's I think they're one and the same. I think going to what Andy said here that my marriage to Nancy represents Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. So if he can undermine our marriage, he discredits the church. And if he can under if he can discredit the church, he undermines our marriage. And he thought individuals, individuals, the church is quite broad in its scope. And it's individual believers that minions, Satan's minions go after. And um, so you say the church over for main target would be the church and not the no. Marriages. He's saying individuals, individuals which okay. make up the body of Christ. Okay. Yeah, and and just my thought was his first attack, of course, was against marriage, against Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that that's all. I yeah. just think because as like I agree with uh, what Andy said is. Uh, and we've had Pastor Sowald on there, uh, mm. Jeff Sowald. He's that's that's what he's always talking about biblical marriage. But, but we yeah, definitely, that'd be a, definitely can and do table more talk. Shows on that. Uh, we have table yes, talk. Uh, uh, table great, talk does great that. Great point. Table talk at uh, ten a.m. on Saturday. My wife Nancy and I talk about uh, biblical marriage and biblical fellowship. But Andy, I uh, absolutely love your idea for us to talk more about biblical marriage here on Stand Up for the Truth. Scott writes in next. Hello, Mike. I'm responding to a recent podcast where you stated some people say Daniel nine speaks of a seven year time of peace. If you hear that from people again, perhaps you could point them to Daniel 9.27, which clearly presents a three and a half period of relative peace, three and a half year period of relative peace, and then the rest of the seven year period, three and a half years, begins and ends with the Antichrist. I'm pretty sure that will not be very peaceful. <laughs> you could also point them to Matthew 24, 15 through 21, which concurs. Yeah, great point, Scott. Thank you. Really, we talk about this seven-year <clears throat> tribulation, but my understanding of the scriptures is, okay, this peace treaty is signed. You know, the Antichrist brings peace. For the first three and a half years, things are pretty good, I think, on, in the world. You know, there's relative peace and calm. And then at the halfway point, he walks into the rebuilt temple and performs what's called the abomination of desolation, where he basically says, I'm the savior. I'm the one you should worship. I'm the one who came to rescue you. And then, of course, the Jews go bonkers and everything literally goes to hell in a handbasket. So, you know, and, and regarding our belief on when we're going to be taken away from the church, pre-trib people believe, well, we're going to be taken away before the tribulation. But I think if we understand it's really a three-and-a-half-year tribulation, not a seven-year tribulation. First three and a half years are pretty good for the world under Antichrist. So good point, Scott. Good catch. Thank you so very much. And wow, this is a lengthy one, a lot in this one from Harry. He says, some weeks, uh, many things fall into place. Such was last week for me after listening to your interviews with John Leffler. The June 27 podcast spoke to me personally um, Leffler describes in detail exactly what was done to me about 10 years ago at a nearby mega church. It's as if Leffler had been there. <laughs> One Sunday morning at the worship, uh, there's, they're performing on stage. Clouds of smoke began to blow over the congregation. This had never been done before. Later in the day, I emailed my men's group to ask if we could discuss this addition to the worship service at our meeting. Um, I asked if they could help me understand what the purpose of this smoke uh, during worship might be other than to make the service more like a rock concert than a worship service. What happened then was exactly as described by Leffler. The pastor applied to, applied to me the Rick Warren technique for purging the church of my presence. Within hours of sending that email inquiry to men I thought were my Christian brothers and friends, I received an angry email from the pastor saying, my questions did not come from the Holy Spirit. He implied that I was a tool of the devil. The questions I raised were never discussed. The only issue was that I had raised any question at all. Before emailing me without ever asking me about my concerns, the pastor made up a bald-faced lie about my motivations and sent it to all the men. Not one man from that men's group ever emailed me or spoke to me again. For about a year, I had been meeting with these men weekly, studying the Bible with them and sharing breakfast. The pastor demonized me so that no one dared talk to me ever again. That men's group taught me a lot about Christian fellowship in contemporary American churches. This particular megachurch has 
separate teen services in a blacked out room lit only by flashing strobe lights and filled with intoxicating, deafening music. There's no mind renewal going on in that room among these young people. Also, last week I came across an article about how older people are being purged from American churches. I was especially struck by the comments about Ukraine, where the communists, much to their regret, failed to purge the churches of old people. My megachurch pastor will not make the same mistake the Ukrainian communists made. He and his associate pastors and deacons will drive out anyone who thinks and asks questions. Wow, isn't that sad? If if this is accurate and if that literally happened, and I'm sure there are more details to it, but just the fact that you bring up something, because using smoke, or, <laughs> smoke and mirrors and lights and anything like that to do worship is that not a form of entertainment, and is that not perhaps conforming to the world? Oh, absolutely. And I go back to uh, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church, uh, where um, uh, the Dan Sutherland, uh, you know, Warren really adopted a lot of Dan Sutherland's principles, and he said, you know, basically, if you pastor, if you have a man in your church that's questioning, you call him a sandblat, call him an evil, just like like Harry was called here, basically a son of the devil. So in other words, if you have the audacity to question a pastor, and Harry, I have to say this, you handled it very biblically. You you first talked to the men about it. Hey, should we talk to the pastor or not? Am I missing something? Somebody in that group goes like a little tattletale and goes tell the pastor, Harry's talking about you. And the next thing you know, you're demonized, you're kicked out of the church. And um, boy, what a, what a sad testimony to what some churches have become, I, where we can't even respectfully question the direction of the church anymore. You just purge out the old people, and then you've got a whole bunch of young people that basically will do whatever you tell them and to I do. I think pride comes up again. Everything on that? Man, that sin of pride. It just won't go away. No, it won't. So, uh, Harry, but I, I, you know, I hope you're in a good fellowship now where you can be open and honest. And, you know, pastors, um, it's okay if people have respectful questions of how we're doing yeah, church. Yeah, and, yeah. and please don't be so thin-skinned as to take it as a personal attack. Doug writes in next, Thank you for continuously reminding us of the plight of the persecuted Christians around the world. It is important for several reasons. They need our prayers and support. It shakes us from our complacency here in America and should alert us that persecution might be right around the corner for us here in America. Yeah, I, we're, we're going to continue to try to do that. Uh, we're going to be having Todd Nettleton back on quite a bit, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. We have got to remember the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world. We need to pray for them. We need to support them any way we can. And we need to learn from their courage and dedication because we may be called upon to be just as courageous and just as dedicated one day soon. Can I put you on the spot here? Any scriptures about praying and supporting the persecuted church come to mind? Well, pray, pray for one another continuously. Paul talked about praying for his brothers and sisters who were being persecuted all the time. I know Peter also talked about it, about the persecuted church in Rome and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So it is scriptural. So Absolutely. Hey, I don't want to get into Edward's question right now because it's really so. lengthy. But let's go to, hey, we have our critics. Let's go to Leo. Yeah, Leo says the USA was never founded as a Christian nation, and they didn't ever intend it to be one. Your Christian nationalism is not only unconstitutional, but a threat to this country. <laughs> Keep your laws and preachings out of my life and my laws. You are the American Taliban. Nobody <laughs> at all is saying you can't practice your religion, and it's not welcome in public. Oh, my goodness, I wonder where he lives. Um, what, what we are saying is it's not welcome in Congress, any sort of government, and, and in anyone's life by forceful insertion. Well, he well, certainly did his research. <laughs> wow, way to go. I mean, that was really well stated. Do you have any facts to offer that? Well, first of all, Leo, um, Turn off your radio and quit listening to me. I mean, it really. Uh, he's got to have the wrong show. He must have just flipped through the channel and heard us and just said, oh my goodness, listen to these right wingers. You know, the American and, Taliban? <laughs> Shame on you, Mike. What am I? I'm a Calvinist. I'm an American Taliban. I'm all these things. But you know, <laughs> Leo, you, you got it as usual as a liberal. You have it all backwards. No one's forcing you to accept the gospel. You can choose whether to accept God's gift of grace or not, it is you and your people that are forcing us. 
You're forcing transgenderism down our throat. You're forcing homosexuality down our throat. You're telling us we can't reach out to people struggling. And where you said no one's telling you you can't practice your religion, what planet are you living on? Look at look at uh, uh, Jack um, Jack Phillips Jack Phillips Baronel Stutzman, Stutzman. Um, look, Sweet Cakes by Melissa yeah. the couple in Oregon Bed and Breakfast Tim owners Tebow. photographers there are Christians being sued across this country for trying to practice their religion in their own private businesses yeah, in their own private homes, homes. Yep, homes in their homes too Bible studies certain things are being there, there's it's, I don't know where Leo is getting that impression probably from MSNBC or CNN. <laughs> or left-wing blogs, but yeah, that this is just an uninformed attack um, that is just... And one thing, though, we were established as a Judeo-Christian nation. That didn't mean every person was a Christian, but with the religious freedoms, the freedom of expression, freedom of religious expression is one of the most important things we have in this country. That's what they tried to get away from the tyranny of England and the Church of England, yeah. too, and the taxation and everything else. Get away where we can have freedom in this land to love our God, to practice that freely in public. Here, a lot of liberals and progressives lean toward this idea that used to lean toward this idea that Christians behind closed doors in your church Sunday morning, you can believe what you want, but do not bring it into the public square. Square. Get out of government. Get out of the entertainment industry. Get out of the uh, uh, American uh, public school system. Just get out of the public square. We don't want to hear it. But now they're even coming into our churches saying, you shouldn't be teaching this uh, from your Bible if it goes against our ideology, homosexuality, whatever, creation, whatever it might be. Yeah, Leo, go back and read your United States Constitution and get back to me and, and tell me what the Constitution says. Congress shall make no law abridging, you know, imposing a religion, nor impose a law abridging the free expression of a religion. Do you That's know exactly of any atheist founding fathers? Do you know of any? Because I know they I were th- they were all theists. Well, I not don't. all. Some theists, uh, okay. some theists, some some Christian. Okay, okay. But uh, the I majority know. of them Muslim. Any Muslims? I'm just curious. No, no. That, in that, fact, that's we can talk okay, about yeah, that another I'm time. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But the word denomination was once in the First Amendment. In one of the drafts of the First Amendment, denomination would imply that the religion they're talking about was Christianity. Christian, right. So we'll talk about that another time. Another Sorry. 500-year-old argument we can cover next <laughs> you brought time. it up at the end of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. That's Leo, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. <laughs> if he's when still we come, is. Yeah. If you're still listening. When we come back, we wrap up the show and talk about next week. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. Now, here's Mike LeMay. Thank you for your comments and questions this week. Next week, our guests include Carl Gallops, Dave Wager, and Carl Kirby. Haven't had Carl on in a couple months. It'll be good to have that old boy back with us. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for uh, your support. And thank you for the times you challenge us, even for people like Leo who challenge us. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're passionate enough, one way or the other, about God to share your thoughts. For David Fiorazzo and Crash Connell, I'm Mike LeMay standing up for the truth. Be bold, strong, and unashamed of the gospel. The Lord your God is always with you.